sort of life that God has for us. And not only is he great at living that himself, but in that, in touching other people, connecting with them, and believing that about them, and helping encourage them into the, the, extra, the extraordinary life that God has for them. And so let's go ahead and give John a, a welcome. And you know, like Jonathan said, I've, I've known he and Reagan now uh, for 25 years, close to 25 years. And uh, it's hard to look at Jonathan and think he's older than 25. But uh, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary in May uh, at Morning Star Church and called to greatness. So it's an exciting, exciting year. And uh, they, both Jonathan and Reagan, were very instrumental in the early days of our church and the campus ministry, and really Morningstar, Call to Greatness, uh, Bluemont wouldn't be where it is today without those two, and uh, many of you as well. So we're all going to celebrate this 25 years together, and uh, it's going to be great. As Jonathan said, I, d I went to high school here in Manhattan. My dad was uh, um, a colonel, uh, served over at Fort Riley, and we lived in Manhattan, and I graduated from Lucky High School in 1981 and so I have a lot of like Jonathan said a lot of stories I'll just share one it's not that great but it's kind of a funny story because it's still uh, you know the KS Hill on your way out of town well there's a tower on there up on there and uh, back in that day I don't know if they still do they had Christmas lights on that tower and so uh, one one evening one Friday evening me and two friends we thought hey, let's climb, that, let's climb on that tower. So we were freshmen in high school. We got up on that tower and climbed that, that tower. And uh, we thought, hey, let's, let's take all the Christmas lights off that tower. And uh, so we, we took all those Christmas lights and we put them in the wheel cover of, of our, my buddy's van. And we had them all stacked in there nicely. We, we, weren't trying, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do with those. And so we thought, wow, that's cool. You know, what are we going to do with them? I mean, we don't know. And, and so we were coming down the hill, and there waiting for us was a couple of policemen. And uh, they, they took us down to uh, headquarters and uh, 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 called our parents. And uh, my dad came down, and he was trying to negotiate with how I could stay the night in jail. Uh, so, and they said, no, we can't do that. So that was a different day and age. But um, so anyway, enough of that. Uh, so it's kind of nice to say I graduated from Lucky High School, and most of you may know of Lucky High School, or, you know, I have to always spell it L-U-C-K-E-Y, and uh, so, but um, it's good to be here. I've always had a fondness for the work of God here in, in, in Manhattan, um, and so I actually became a Christian my freshman year at KU, and uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about that here in a moment, but I want to talk to you. Uh, the title, I'm not very good at, at uh, making titles, but the Gospel of the Kingdom. But more importantly and more specifically, I want to talk to you this morning uh, about um, having a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift. And when, when I talk about a paradigm shift, I'm talking about a change in the way you think about something that's so dramatic that it changes the way that you live. And uh, so... Um, I want to just get into it. And the backdrop this morning I want to look at is uh, Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Okay? We're just going to take a look at that and some little things going on there. So let's just begin. I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. 
it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest. Okay, so this is early on in church history, uh, you know, and, uh, and Saul uh, is, is pretty much a, a radical, and uh, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, which is about 125 miles from Jerusalem. And so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is interesting how the early church was called the way. They were followers of the way of the Lord. And I think that's what we're wanting to talk about this morning is discovering the way of the Lord. Um, Sometimes we have the right facts, but we don't have the right essence. The way. And so it's good it's talking about the way of the Lord. That there's a way, you know, it says in Isaiah... My, uh, his thoughts are not, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways. And so we want to know the ways of, the, of God. And as we want to grow in the Lord, you know, initially there's a lot of truths that we have to really embrace. But as you grow up and, and mature in the Lord, you realize that it's not just in having the right facts. It's about having the right essence of those facts and the way of the Lord. The way God does things is so important for us as we, we want to be followers of Jesus and know how He does things and, and in essence why He does things. And that's discovering the way of the Lord. So if they said the way, both men and women, He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's Saul goes to get letters from the high priest that when he goes to Damascus, he can arrest and take hold of and bring back to Jerusalem any of those people who are followers of the way. Now, what I think is important here, and just kind of a side note, if we just back up just a little bit, I promise not to be like, you know, maybe you know, like elderly people, and they, you know, I'm elderly probably to some of you, but uh, as you, it's on, it's on a continuum, and I'm kind of on that continuum approaching elderly. But, uh, you know, they'll start telling a story, and then they say, hey, wait, let me back up for a second. And then they go, well, wait, let me back up. For, I mean, we were at one men's encounter, and there was an 84-year-old guy and was beginning, and he says, you know, uh, about two years ago, I, and he goes, well, let me back up. When I was in my 60s, and he goes, well, let me back up. I was 18, and you thought, whoa, we're not getting out of here for a long time. <laughs> I promise you that's not what we're going to do this morning. So, but what's so powerful, if we think about this conversion of Saul, and this enormous paradigm shift that we're going to look at that Saul had, what made room for it was really what Stephen chose to do. And uh, when Stephen was, was um, preaching and he ran afoul of the religious leaders of the day, uh, as it says in Acts 7, verse 58, it says, When they had driven him out of the city, talking about Stephen, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who now we're reading about uh, several chapters later. It says, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What's so significant about this is that Stephen's request to not have the sin of those who stoned him to be held against them paved the way for God to act redemptively towards 
Saul, towards all of them, but towards Saul. When we think about forgiveness, we sometimes think about it so personally. You know, that, you know, it's a way that we get ourselves out of a cage, and, you know, we're, when we choose to forgive, we're really hurting ourselves. But if we can think about the power of forgiveness actually releases God to act redemptively in the lives of those who we choose to forgive. And here Stephen being stoned said, hey, don't hold this sin against them. And there was a young man named Saul who was participant in that stoning. And Stephen's request for God to forgive them allowed and paved the way for God to act redemptively. And so too God did. And that's just what's so cool. It's so cool about, you know, the kingdom of God is cool. And I just, wanna, I just want us, everyone to know that. There's, you know, whatever your idea of Christianity is, you know, maybe being a little stiff, stoic, let me tell you, the kingdom of God is cool. And there's no one cooler than Jesus. I mean, I mean when you begin to understand his ways, that he was, there's no one that can come close to the cool and, I'll, and I mean that in the fullest sense of the word, cool. All right, enough of what I think about cool. Um, so, you know, um, as we think about, as we're going to talk about, and I hope you, you know, you, you probably, many of you probably understand this, what happened on this road to Damascus. I want to I just stretch and give, give, give myself a little latitude here. Uh, and I'm not sure that this is completely 100% true, but... I find it interesting. How many of you ever have something like that? Like, you know, I'm not sure this is true, but it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of uh, theologians, that have intimated and, and conveyed that the first encounter Jesus had with Saul wasn't on the road to Damascus, but that it was Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler that many people say that the rich young ruler fit many of the characteristics of a young man named Saul. He was, a, he was a ruler. He was wealthy. And so just in thinking about that, I want us to look at that little bit, that encounter and understanding this enormous paradigm shift that Saul went on a little bit more about where Saul was coming from and what may have been some of the things that had to be shifted so, I want us to go and look in Mark 10. So, this is just, you know, whether it's, whether it's Saul or not, there's still a lot to be, to be had here. In verse 17, it says, He was setting out on a journey, and a man ran up to him and knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, okay, because words have meaning. It says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, just even our understanding of what good is, is in need of a paradigm shift. You know, here, he wasn't necessarily addressing him as God. He said, good teacher, and Jesus turned it on him and said, why do you call me good? No one is a good except God. Jesus addresses the way Saul, or this rich young ruler, thought about the concept of good. About understanding really what good is. Because, you know, we all can get trapped in, in a paradigm of thinking certain things can be good and therefore qualify us. 
You know, like you become a successful student and you land a good job and you pay your taxes and you don't, you know, get sideways with law enforcement and, you know, you're, you do these, then you're good. Really? Because Jesus might challenge that paradigm of your concept of what good is. And what we're relying on to think of ourselves as good. Or there's other things we could be thinking that it's good. You know, that we base certain rules or we fit in certain segments. What is good? So um, what we see here is this rich young ruler was a man standing before Jesus in need of a paradigm shift. And Jesus goes on, you know, to think about this. Now, what I want to say is to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, to follow him, and to participate and to have kingdom thinking. The way that you think has to change. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the way that you think has to change. See, not just what you think, how you think. And that's where a paradigm shift is necessary. Here, this man, hey, you know, and we'll look at him a little bit more, but, you know, a need to have a paradigm shift. Have you ever had a paradigm shift? Has your walk with the Lord just been addition to new facts? Or has there been a fundamental change in the way that you think about things? Now, uh, me, growing up, I grew up in a religious home. You know, had a certain idea about what being a Christian was. And like I said, in 1982, I was on the University of Kansas. I was invited to this campus meeting, and I was there, and the guy preached. And after he's preached, he said, hey, everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed. He said, if you want to give your life to the Lord, I just want you to stand up. And I was sitting there, and I was thinking that up into that point, I had understood in my entire religious understanding, the way I thought about things was that if I, w- if I become a good person, if I'm a good person, if I don't sin, then God's going to accept me. That I, was, that I knew that Jesus... I didn't doubt that Jesus hadn't died on the cross, but still, to me, it was an example of how we should live rather than something more than that. And in that moment, when I was there, I just honestly said to the Lord, I said, I tried to be a good person. I've tried to be a Christian. I just can't do it. Not knowing what Jesus or God, what, whatever, would, would, uh, how He would address that, but as clear as day, I heard in my heart, Jesus said, you're right, John, you can't do it, but if you trust me, I will do it. And how many of you know, that maybe you don't know, I'm about ready to tell you. But uh, in that moment, my whole paradigm shifted. That I, I, I had all the facts. It wasn't a question of the facts. It was the way I was viewing the facts. That I realized in that moment that Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And changed the whole, my whole entire life. And I put my trust and faith in what Jesus did. And my life and the way that I viewed things changed dramatically. Now that's an incredible transformation. You know, it changed my life. But how many of you know, I've had more paradigm shifts over my life following the Lord. How many of you know that my, all my thinking wasn't just radically, you know, all of my thinking wasn't transformed in that moment. You know, and probably... You know, that was pretty significant, but you know, there's, there was still a lot more in my thinking that had to change. Uh, I, I was in love with, my, uh, with Pam 
I was. I'm still in love with her, <laughs> but uh, very much so, matter of fact. But I was in love with her for six years before we got married. So I say that. Why? Not to set an example, because I don't know if that was very smart. But I, and I was, we were, we were deeply in love with one another when we got married. I mean, I mean, I, I was crazy about her, and of course, you know, she felt the same. But, <laughs> but our first year of marriage was really hard. It was really difficult. And uh, there, there was just like, it was just like, there was like, it was somewhat combative. And uh, I had my reasons to thinking that it was combative. And so, you know, a friend of ours said, you know, you guys should go to marriage counseling. Because at that time, we really didn't have a lot of older people around us that could help us or talk to us. So um, we, we did. We went to a marriage counselor. And we went to like twice. But in the second session, Pam was explaining some of her thoughts and feelings about some things. And and I, and I was listening, and, and, but then I said, and I, I don't even understand to this day why I said this, but I looked and I said, and the, and the counselor said something to me, and I, and I, I don't really exactly remember, but I remember saying, hey, you know, that doesn't fit, fit in my theological box. And the counselor looks at me and she says, well, maybe you're going to have to expand your theological box. And in, in that moment, you might understand, but what it was, was it exposed my own selfishness cloaked with some religious ideology that really wasn't from the Lord. It was just a covering for my own selfishness and my own egocentricness. Like I thought, hey, this was about me. You know, I, I married Pam for me. And seeing the marriage in that moment, transformation happened. It changed, changed the way I lived and thought. You know... Uh, so we have to understand that some of the way that we think is, is, is disguised in goodness and cloaked in religion. Right. Or tradition. Or, you know, just that's the way you always saw it happen. Or that's your experiences. But how many of you know that God... How do I keep saying it? How many of you know? I don't know where that came from. That's like... Stop that. All right, so <laughs> if, if you already knew all this, I, there would be no reason for me to be up here. All right, so. But, but if, you, if you can think about it in these terms of understanding how we have to understand this process that God wants to change the way we think, and that's, that's a part of it. So anyway, going back to this rich young ruler. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, which is incredible. Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Well, let me, add, let me tell you something. One of the things that stand in the way of our paradigm shift is idols. Idols. What are idols? Idols, idols in our heart determine our paradigm. <coughs> things that we elevate of, to such an importance that they are beyond their appropriate position. 
Again, it could be wealth, it could be comfort, it could be your idea of success, worldly success, it could be notoriety, reputation. All of those things can become idols. Our rights, those can be idols. And our idols determine our paradigm. So here, Jesus was wanting this rich young ruler to have a paradigm shift, but it was his idols that stood in the way and the fact that he couldn't do he couldn't do what Jesus asked him because Jesus directly addressed the idol in his life. Now, you know, does that mean everybody needs to sell all they have and give to the poor? Well, no. I mean, I thought that when I was first saved. And, you know, uh, I thought, man, okay, I'm going to do this when I don't have much. You know? <laughs> so the only thing I really had as a college student was a stereo, and I did. I gave it away. And I said, see, I've given all my possessions away. <laughs> that was pretty cheap, you know, because... They weren't really an idol, but, you know, hey, I could think, you know, the things that we do. So, but what, what is it that God might be speaking specifically to your heart? You know, what, what is there to have enough self-awareness to understand how idols work and how they develop and things that you value that maybe they're not really, they're, they're, they're out of priority. They're out of position. You know, uh, he goes on, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I, I really don't know to what degree uh, you understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the concept of going to heaven when you die. Yeah, yes, heaven where you go when you die is the kingdom of God. But when Jesus says the kingdom of God, he's not referring to heaven in our traditional uh, Western evangelical sense. He's talking about something that's different than the sweet by and by. He's talking about something that is able to be entered into now. Here, while you're still alive. So he says how hard it is for someone of wealth to enter the kingdom of God, that, that it's open. You know, what did, what did Jesus say and John the Baptist say when they first came on the scene? They said... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If it's, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that means what? It's attainable. It's, it's reachable. It's at hand. And the kingdom of Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection opened the kingdom of God for those to enter. But He's saying it's difficult for somebody to have idols in their life to enter the kingdom of God. And He goes on to say... Uh, but the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? You know, we have to understand that getting saved is easy, right? Giving, giving your life to, giving your miserable, wretched life to the Lord. Hello, hello, right? And getting his life. Whoa, that's, that's, to, that's easy. But entering the kingdom of God is difficult. Why is it difficult? Because it involves paradigm shifts. It involves paradigm shifts, changing in the way that you think about things. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You have to understand, he is not talking about dying and going to heaven. He's talking about enter the kingdom of God here. Because if you think about it, you know... Uh, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. 
So you're not taking, so it's not taking, a, you don't have a choice about that, but you have a choice about what, what is it now that you can enter and what might be required of you to accept and to receive and to see transformed so that you can enter into something progressively. So, looking at them, this is what's amazing. Verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, oh, back up. Verse 26, it says, They were even more astonished and said to Him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now you have to think about this, and this is where it's interesting. He was saying this, and the, the, the dialogue was in direct response to this rich young ruler who I'm saying could possibly have been Saul, and he says, even as young Saul's walking away, with man, this is impossible. What? This transformation, this paradigm shift, of leaving riches or wealth or idols to enter to the kingdom of God. He says, hey, with man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Now, he was still speaking, I believe, in context of the rich young ruler. Almost as if a prophecy about this rich young ruler who, who maybe saw. I know that all that I understand and know about the kingdom has not only been a gift from God, but it is a miracle. It's really a miracle, and when you think about what you, what you can comprehend through revelation, what God reveals to you, if you know anything about the kingdom of God, it's really not attributed, can be attributed to your endeavor, your goodness. It really is by the grace of God. It's really a miracle that you can understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And you might be sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? What, what is he? That there are mysteries of the kingdom of God. It is not just so, like, let's have a flip chart and, you know, let's, you know, let's have stick figure representation of salvation, you know, where we can just draw it in one picture and then you can understand completely what God is doing in the earth. No, it's not like that. Yeah, there's elements that, of that that can help us to understand, but the deep understanding that God wants to give you is unfolded to you in a process of, of transformation through shifts of paradigm and viewing things differently by li- lending your heart to God and allowing God to change your heart and mind about things through, through His revelation and understanding. I'm not talking about new understanding. I'm not talking about any new things. I'm talking about age-old truths that God begins to reveal to you as you progress in your understanding and heart and grace towards the kingdom of God. Now, you know, you might say, God, that does not interest me. I, right after church, I'm going on a Netflix binge. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, the kingdom of God is like the pearl of great prize. Did the guy who found the pearl go, oh man, how much am I going to have to give for that? No, he's like gave everything to get the pearl. There was no equal exchange of value. He knew that it was worth everything. The kingdom of God. To live in the kingdom of God, in the joy and the goodness of God, in understanding you're not an accident, you're not a quirk of evolutionary fate, that you have been designed and made for God's purposes found in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is God's rule and reign. It's God's ways that He operates in. So the call to heaven is easy. Who wants to go to hell? 
Not me. I don't want to. Who wants to go ahead? Sign me up. Who wants to enter the kingdom of God now? Oh, okay. Hmm. What's all involved? Can I still be Anne? Can I still have all these, you know, I got these idols over here? What we have to see is that Jesus said, it's really hard to do that. Pretty difficult. It's like trying to shove a camel through an eye of a needle. But what, what this, the understanding of the kingdom is a constant reminder of the humility I need to have in following Jesus. True humility. All right, so back to this. Oh. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this plane. I'm going to read some of this. Back to Acts 9. As, we, as he was traveling and it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And he was there he was, uh, three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. I'm just going to say this. I don't believe that Saul was having a religious fast. I believe what happened, and sometimes happens... That when we are in the process of an incredible paradigm shift, we have to see that what we were doing was so wrong and be willing to admit that it was wrong and to look at it honestly that I think if you can think about Saul, he was sick to his stomach about what he would have been doing. It was a credible shift. But the grace of God was there with him. And then... I'll move on. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, <clears throat> uh, uh, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And how and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for, the, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom you appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. As I, as I close, I just want us to see how God could have said everything Saul needed to hear, 
and in his initial contact, right? I mean, he said, he said, hey, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, and he could have just explained it all to him on his own. But God chose that a portion of what God wanted to say to him would come through another person. Yeah, yeah, we would all like to have, hey, you know, hey, God hasn't told me that. I don't, I'm, it's just about me and Jesus. Really? Well, what if Jesus has chosen other people to speak into your life, to tell you something, to help you? Hey, it's a humility we all have to have. It's a humility. The more that you mature in Christ, it's not the less people you have speaking in your life. It's the more people you have to listen to. I don't know anybody in Lawrence that has to listen to more people than me. Why? Partly it's because I probably need help more than everybody else. But it's also because of the depth that I need to know and understand that it's going to come from people. I have to have the humility to listen. Listen to what? Because God has reserved a portion of what He wants to tell me. He has reserved it for, to, to give to me through the life of another person. That takes humility. But the humility pays off in the revelation understanding that you gain about life the perspective that you gain, the real understanding that comes to you as your ears and heart are open to hearing God through the lives of another person. And that's what God did with Saul. And he became Paul. And guess what? We would not be here today if it hadn't been for the transformation and the paradigm shift that Saul went through. He became Paul and was instrumental in, in taking the church to where it needs to go. And God wants to use us in the same way. To be humble, to be hungry, to be forgiving, and to, to allow our heart to be open to what God wants to say to us. Amen? Let's bow your heads and I'll pray. And the music group, come on up. If you would, please. Father, I just ask you, Lord, to keep us humble and hungry. Lord, to desire more of what you want to reveal to us. Lord, don't let us be like those who don't have ears to hear. But Father, who, whose heart is not dull, help us to stay sharp in our heart and hungry for You so that, God, You can speak to us what we don't know we don't know. Help us, Lord. Give us a greater portion of Your kingdom here in Manhattan through Bluemont Church. Help us to be those who open the door for others through our heart, through our work. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together and sing this last song.